Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Have you been working hard to dominate your surgical residency? Do you want to help others to dominate no matter what stage of training they're in? Hi to all of our BTK listeners. My name is Nina Clark, general surgery resident at the University of Washington. And I'm Jessica Millar, general surgery resident at the University of Michigan. We both have had the privilege of working as behind the knife education fellows for the past year, and we're excited to continue growing our team. Are you a surgical resident interested and enthusiastic about surgical education? BTK is offering a two-year surgical education fellowship starting July 1st, 2023 and ending June 30th, 2025. Only residents who are starting a two-year block of professional development time away from full-time clinical activity will be considered, and you have to ensure that your institution and mentor approve of this fellowship. Fellows will be deeply involved in the BTK activities. The two of us have worked on an absite revamp, not tying video series, our new trauma video atlas, and a comprehensive student resource, just to start. While this is an unpaid internship, you'll have access to the, all the behind-the-knife resources, like illustrators, editors, recording and video equipment, and more to help make high-quality surgical education content. Applications are due April 16th, and you can find the link to the application in our show notes or on our Twitter page at Behind the Knife. You can also contact us at hello at behindthenife.org with any questions. We've had a great time so far this year, and there's only more to come. We hope you'll consider joining us. Welcome back. This is the UCLA Endocrine Surgery team for our final episode for Behind the Knife. Today is our adrenal-focused episode. We have with us Dr. Ye, Dr. Wu, Dr. Livitz, um, our endocrine surgery attendings. We also have Dr. Kim, our current endocrine surgery fellow, and then Dr. Shum and myself, our general surgery residents. Uh, we're excited to have Dr. Livitz here in particular today because we'll be talking about the uh, American Association of Endocrine Guidelines for Adrenal uh, Testing and Workup for Adrenalectomy. And she participated in writing those guidelines. So we're going to go ahead and talk about three different cases of adrenalectomy. So we will start with uh, Max presenting our first case. Great. We'll start off with a patient who's a 75-year-old male um, with a history of hypertension, currently on five different antihypertensives, coronary artery disease, and diabetes, who's being seen in the preoperative area prior to a left hemicolectomy for a polyp with high-grade dysplasia. In the pre-op holding area, it was noted that his systolic blood pressures were above 180 millimeters of mercury. Review of his preoperative workup included a CT scan, which showed a right-sided 1.5 centimeter adrenal nodule. This appeared low density on his non-con CT chest. There was no prior biochemical testing that had been conducted and no mention of the adrenal nodule in any of his preoperative workup and clearance. Colorectal surgery called endocrine surgery to ask whether they should proceed with surgery today. What would you tell them? Tough case. 
So, Max, I remember you mentioned this case to me. You you found this just by doing a little bit of chart analysis in the pre-op area. So it's a small thing, but the patient's very hypertensive, and you're about to do kind of a semi-elective, clinically necessary, medically necessary operation on him. So so the question is, does the patient need workup or not? Great case. So, I mean, I think it's a great case. It's very relevant, I think, to all of us, to, you know, multiple surgical specialties, because this is an adrenal incidentaloma. I mean, this adrenal nodule was found during workup for the colorectal cancer, so it's an incidentaloma. On the other hand, the patient does have some clinical symptoms that could be consistent with hyperfunctioning nodule, with the resistant hypertension, I think you mentioned diabetes. So he's at higher risk for having a nodule that is hyperfunctioning. I think the question is, how much workup needs to be done before this colorectal surgery? And is there something that would make you have to cancel the surgery? Um, the only thing, you know, in my mind would be if this could be a pheochromocytoma. Right. And so traditionally, you know, any adrenal nodule, you have to do biochemical testing to rule out a pheochromocytoma before you consider any other surgery. What's um, newer in the adrenal guidelines is that we now know that the imaging characteristics are predictive of pheochromocytoma. So if you have a CT scan with a non-contrast phase and you have Hansfeld units that are less than 10 on that non-con phase, uh, it is not a pheochromocytoma. We can basically rule that out now based on imaging. So in this patient, I would argue that if, you know, we confirm that it's low density with household units less than 10 on non-con phase, um, then it's not a pheochromocytoma. And anything else like uh, aldosteronoma or a nodule causing hypercortisolism could be addressed after the surgery. The only other thing I would mention is in a patient with another malignancy, could it be a metastatic disease and could that influence your plan? That also would be very unlikely in a low-density nodule. Those also are much more likely to have higher household units. Um, that would be probably a quite, you know, discussion with colorectal surgery. What is the suspicion for metastatic disease? And, uh, you know, would that change the surgical plan? So if there was no CT chest non-con and all we had was the CT with IV contrast of the abdomen pelvis, which just shows an indeterminate nodule, then you're kind of forced to, to stop and either, either postpone the case or get a CT scan in the, in the, in the near term with non-con. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. You cannot make that determine about the density if you only have a phase with IV contrast. Uh, was that the case here? Fortunately, we had the CT chest, which I didn't ah. look off at the bat or off the bat, and I actually called Dr. Limits as a <laughs> kind of curbside consultation, and she asked me to look at the CT chest, which we do for all of our colon cancer workup, and it catches the upper part of the abdomen, and we confirm with radiology that morning that it was non that it was low density, but there was still some kind of ambiguity with the anesthesiology and. You know, uh, we just felt it was kind of safest to do a full biochemical workup. And we ended up just doing that operation last week, and the patient did did very well from the operation. So. so I think that's another kind of important point. I mean, you know, there's one thing to talk about the guidelines that came out last year. There's another part from the anesthetic standpoint of how comfortable do they feel applying these guidelines to their patient and putting that patient to sleep with, you know, biochemically has not been ruled out for a pheochromocytoma. So I think we certainly have to respect their their viewpoint. And in this case, they, they were not comfortable without a biochemical workup to rule out a pheo. Yeah. Just want to add that it's not a coincidence that CT chest includes the adrenals. That's by design. 
Uh, you know, many people with lung cancer have adrenal metastases, and they're looking for that. Yeah. Uh, so that was a great place to look. Yeah. Um, so I want, I'm wondering, like, what is the in this patient? What is the prior probability of pheochromocytoma? And if something has low pre-contrast HU, what if it's not a pheochromocytoma? What do you think it could be? Uh, yeah, so the you know the risk of pheochromocytoma in an adrenal lymphadenoma is I don't know maybe up to five percent. You know it sort of varies based on reports. Maybe up to five percent. This patient has baseline hypertension, so maybe that increases it by a little bit. Um, but then once you have that low density nodule, I mean it goes down to almost no risk at all of pheochromocytoma. Um, However, you know, aldosteronoma certainly could have low density and could absolutely be of the size of 1.5 centimeters. That would probably be my kind of highest level of suspicion in this patient. And also a nodule that produces cortisol could similarly be low density. I think those are possible. So it sounds like in this case, unfortunately, the case did get canceled. But based on the guidelines, given the pre-contrast Hounsview units less than 10, we could have just said, listen, risk of a VO really low. Um, let's just proceed with the case. Yeah, um, I think so. But this patient gets sent to your clinic, Masha, and we now need to work up for the different uh, hormone excesses, how, uh, you know, for the residents and trainees. How do you systematically go through uh, and, and do all your testing for an adrenal lesion? Yeah, so we just go through the different hormones that could be produced. So the first one um, is aldosterone, and we just check a plasma aldosterone to renin ratio. Um, and we're looking for a ratio greater than 30, some say greater than 20, because you don't want to miss any potential cases. And then, um, you know, ideally you want the absolute aldosterone level to be maybe over 15, um, and you should see a suppressed renin. And that needs to be done for anybody who has hypertension. Um, and then hypercortisolism should be evaluated um, for all patients with adrenal incentiloma. There's so many different ways to check for cortisol. Um, I think a lot of times the endocrinologists prefer low-dose dexamethasone suppression tests as the initial test. Um, you can also check uh, plasma DGA sulfate. It's kind of a newer test that actually has very high sensitivity for mild hypercortisolism. We tend to check a plasma ACTH at the same time, so you already kind of have a sense there is hypocortisolism. Where is it coming from? Is it adrenal or pituitary source? Of course, you can get 24-hour urine cortisol. That can be normal, though, in mild hypocortisolism. Um, and then salivary cortisol is the last one. Um, and people often check multiple salivary cortisols. Um, Michael, what, what's your preferred way? There's so many different ways. Oh, I'm an old-school 24-hour urine. I like <laughs> to see it significantly elevated, definitely above 50 but, but there's but. a new publication, 2016 in and m uh, looking at DA, uh, DHEAS versus dexamethasone suppression test versus 24-hour urine cortisol. And what they found is that 24-hour urine cortisol had a sensitivity of 69%, specificity 72%, uh-huh. whereas DST and DHEAS both had a sensitivity of like 99%. Sure. And plus with uh, DHEAS, no medication you have to take. You have to collect a jug of your pee just to get like one <laughs> blood test, um, and, and it works well. And again, the, w- the reason why it works, it's because it's a sex hormone, but it's regulated by the pituitary adrenal axis uh-huh. so that if you have excess cortisol, uh, then there's going to be a feedback that then suppresses the adrenal release of DHEAS. So you want to see it if it's suppressed, then you're going to be worried that it could be Cushing's. 
Got if it. it's a normal or high level, then you don't have to worry. So it kind of reflects um, lack of ACTH stimulation if your ACTH is suppressed. Thank you for explaining the direction of that. Sometimes I get confused yeah. in which direction. I think the dexamethasone yeah. suppressions are popular, but when I'm going through the labs, I, I'm always like, did the patient get dexamethasone before this? And unless the endocrinologist scribbles on that lab report that this is after dexamethasone, I sometimes have trouble trusting it. And the um, timing is important, you know, you know getting the cortisol at the right time. I mean, I think the 24-hour urine cortisol, I mean, the nice thing about that is that it sort of tells you maybe the degree of hypercortisolism. So then if the, it's elevated, especially two, threefold above the upper limit of normal, that patient very likely to actually have, you know, Cushing's um, and more significant hypercortisolism. I think the DHA sulfate is helpful for much more subtle cases of mild autonomous hypercortisolism. And I think there's a lot of questions about which of those patients need to have surgery, you know, depending on the severity of the biochemical abnormality and also the clinical symptoms. But I do think that that is, the DHA sulfate is an easy test and picks up those kind of mild, you know, more subclinical cases. Yeah. And then just to finish up the conversation, then um, the last hormone would be looking at metanephrine levels to rule out pyrochromocytoma. We already had the discussion that based on imaging, you can actually rule it out. Um, but if it's indeterminate imaging, if you don't have a non-con phase, um, if anesthesia is still wanting it, then you would either get plasma or 24-hour urine metanephrine levels, um, which have better performance than catecholamine. So you do want the the norepinephrine and metanephrine. And, you know, I think that more recent studies show that the performance is fairly similar between plasma and 24-hour urine, but I know Michael has uh, feelings about uh, preferring the 24-hour urine. So what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, once again, um, I don't know. It's it's kind of the more tried and true. And for 24-hour urine testing, the two analytes I pay the most attention to, as you said, are metanephrine and norepinephrine, and we're looking for two times or greater the upper limit of normal. Um, if it's not two times, it's not a FIO. With rare exception, the only exception would be someone you know has a genetic syndrome who might be making a small FIO where the pretest probability uh, for having a FIO is higher. Okay, but the rule for me is if it's not double, it's not a FIO. It never has been. Um, and then there are these weird things like if people present with an isolated VMA elevation or isolated dopamine elevation, those are not FIOs. It's always one of the, one of the two, metanephrine or normetanephrine. Now, a caveat here is for the plasma testing, so many false positives. Oh my God. Remember, you're looking for a rare disease in potentially a large screen population. So if you don't have a highly specific test, you're going to chase like 50 people with false positive plasma free testing before you get one FIA. That's not a great way for a surgeon to spend his or her time. You know, um, and I just want to emphasize that the one plasma test you're looking at is plasma free metanephrine. Not the norepinephrine, plasma free metanephrine. The most useful thing about that test is if it's negative, you're done. It's so sensitive that if the plasma free metanephrine is negative, your patient doesn't have a FIA, doesn't have a FIA move on. I think that's a really important point. If you have normal plasma metanephrines, you do not need to then confirm that with urine testing. I see that all the time. You're, you're done once that's, that's negative. Um, and so then let's to just tie that up, um, a couple more things in this patient. Again, you know, if you're worried about there's an existing, 
malignancy already, a colorectal cancer, could this be metastatic disease? Most of those are not going to be low density, but it's just something you always have to keep in mind. Um, and then the next part is, you know, so this patient had all this testing and it was actually all normal, totally normal. So then do we need any more surveillance? Um, and for small, low density nodules, the answer is no. I think we do a lot of yearly imaging and testing um, to kind of follow up patients with adrenal nodules. And it's a lot of unnecessary testing. Um, so from an imaging perspective, a low density nodule does not need actually any more surveillance. Um, an intermediate nodule, let's say that's not low density, you get one follow-up scan at 6 to 12 months, with the idea being if it's a malignancy, that, that's going to rapidly grow most likely during that time span. If it's stable at 6 to 12 months, again, you can stop getting the imaging. Biochemical testing can be considered in the future, especially for cortisol, because sometimes they do become active and produce cortisol in the future. So at the minimum, patients need clinical follow-up so that if they develop signs of some functional uh, production, then you can retest them. This is a lot of new stuff, you know. So the adrenal incidentaloma, I know we're tight on time here, is one of the most favorite, one of the favorite oral boards questions, right? So if you're listening to this, be ready. For getting this question on your oral boards. And the new stuff, since we have Dr. Livitz here, is use a suppressed DHEA sulfate is indicative of ACTH independent Cushing's from typically from adrenal source. Really think about the pre-contrast hounds field units. That's relatively new and it has a powerful predictive value in terms of ruling out a FIO if the HU is low, which is more fatty. Oh, we've got an airplane. Um, and the third thing is less surveillance for low-risk, low-density lesions. These are all in uh, just within the past uh, couple years. New stuff. And the small, according to the guidelines, uh, is less than four centimeters? Yes. Yeah. And this is another one of those things where everybody's going to have a slightly different opinion. Um, you know, when we were talking about the guidelines, you know, there's, there's a question, what if you have an eight-centimeter nodule and it's low-density? Or a six centimeter nodule that's low density. Are you really going to feel comfortable saying it's low density? I'm not going to take it out or ever follow it again. You know, I mean, that's sort of really push. I think a lot of people would not feel comfortable. On the other hand, how common is it for us to see a six centimeter solid adrenal nodule that's not functional? That's not at least producing cortisol. So these are going to be very rare cases. But of course, you have to apply your clinical judgments and not just look at, you know, one characteristic in isolation, but, but everything. And this is kind of just a classic situation where this patient's gone through so many different doctors and workup, and it's being caught at the last second. And me and Dr. Lewis actually did a study looking at this, and I think 25% of patients, 20 to 25-40% are getting appropriate workup for these nodules because they're so often overlooked by the more acute issue, which in this case was this colorectal cancer and this cardiac history. And then we're kind of dealing with this later on now. So, All right. Our next case is a 24-year-old gentleman with a history of hypertension that has been going on for years. He has symptoms of paroxysmal headaches, sweating, and urinary frequency. And prior evaluation of his hypertension in the past demonstrated no hormone or metanephrine abnormalities. However, repeated workup of this, um, of this recently found elevated serum and urine metanephrines. The CT scan showed a left adrenal versus a retroperitoneal mass that was 4.6 centimeters in size that was heterogeneously enhancing, arising from the left adrenal or just adjacent to it. Pretty different from the first case, right? Young patient, B 
big mass, suggestive symptoms, different. Yeah, imaging characteristics also, you know, enhancing. Medullary tumors are just different. They don't have a whole lot of fat. They're just bright. Uh, yeah. So I think the first thing is the biochemical testing. So um, this patient's norepinephrine was definitely greater than two times the normal. It was in the th- almost 2,000. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this patient, I mean, I think there was some question on the imaging, whether it was an adrenal mass or a mass just next to the adrenal gland. But if you do think that it's an adrenal mass, you would work it up the same way that we mentioned previously. You know, the patient has hypertension, so you're going to work up hyperaldosteronism, hypercortisolism, and then pheochromocytoma or pheochromocytoma. I wonder if we have the epinephrine, the 24-hour urine epinephrine and metanephrine levels in this case. It looks like this is almost predominantly a pure, almost purely a norepi, normetanephrine secreting tumor. Yeah, what do you make uh, of that? Which is revealing, you know, so, so you got to think back to medical school and remember that, uh, you know, epinephrine is made only in the adrenal gland because it's that last, that last enzyme uh, you know, this, this all starts with tyrosine, I think, and ends with um, phenylethanolamine and methyltransferase, which converts norepi to epi only in the adrenal medulla. So, um, you know, if it's normetanephrine, norepi secreting, you're looking for, you're thinking extra adrenal source. She has to comment that he said all that without looking at any notes. Sky high step one scores. <laughs> Okay, so then, you know, I think uh, this patient, we have a normetanephrine level that's way above twofold of the upper limit of normal. We know it's a pheochromocytoma or perganglioma. Again, the imaging wasn't totally clear, but this patient is only 24. Um, so, I mean, Michael, what are your thoughts about, would you get any additional imaging on this patient? Yeah, I mean, this, this patient almost for sure has uh, inherited a familial syndrome, uh, sets him up for potentially multiple lesions, sets them up for extra adrenal lesions, depending on the underlying genotype. Um, so you can pursue whole body functional imaging. This guy, I wonder if you did. Yeah. Would you do genetic testing first to guide how much imaging you do? Uh, it takes a little while to come back. You know, not much shorter than before. Um, but usually I would do the gen- I, I tell patients that we're going to take care of this problem now and we sort out the genetic information later. In most cases, that's kind of my bias. Um, people do it differently. Yeah, there was an interesting discussion about this during the, the guidelines discussions where some people said they want that genetic information up front because it could change the operation that they do. Um, you know, if you have... Uh, you know, I don't know, somebody with MEN um, that maybe is at risk for having developing a pheo in the other adrenal gland later, they might consider doing a partial adrenalectomy if it's amenable to it. With other people saying exactly what Michael said, that the time that it takes to get in to see a genetic counselor, get the genetic testing done, could cause a significant delay in the patient's care and maybe is unlikely to change what you're going to do now. I mean, in this case, we have a large you know, nodule. It's, it's unlikely that it would be amenable to a subtotal adrenal resection anyway. Um, so if it's not going to change our management right now, that we shouldn't delay the patient's care and we could get the results afterwards. And I think that's what happened with this patient. The patient um, did go to the operating room prior to getting the genetic workup. 
But and then circling back to the additional imaging, I agree that if this is a patient, I mean, we tend to prefer getting dotatate scan as our functional whole body imaging. And I do think, you know, somebody who's very young, somebody who has an extra adrenal paraganglioma, they're at much higher risk for having a hereditary syndrome. And we should consider, you know, some functional imaging to look for additional disease prior to surgery. Do you think the dotatate scan is the current best scan for this functionally? And is it, how available is it? Is it broadly available? I do think that it's the best scan. I think it's still not as available as I think MIBG is actually more available, you know, around the country, but I just think the sensitivity is lower for MIBG. The specificity is very high, um, but the sensitivity to detect smaller lesions is, is better in a dotatate scan. Um, the only other thing is things that are likely to be malignant, like a, you know, malignant pheochromocytoma, FDG PET might be a little bit better for that. So, uh, this patient went to the OR, but of course, when we know that there's a pheochromocytoma, we don't want to take them straight to the OR. We want to do blockade first. Um, and so uh, there are a new statement about uh, what kind of blockade we should use. Uh, and it seems like in these guidelines, you can use selective or non-selective uh, alpha blockade before surgery to prevent wild swings in uh, blood pressure during the case. Uh, so... Masha, when you are doing blockade, uh, which kind of blockade do you use? And then what are your endpoints? How do you know that this patient is blocked? Yeah. Um, so the longest used medication is phenoxybenzamine, which is um, the non-selective, you know, long-acting uh, alpha blockade. It's been used for, you know, a long time. Um, we know it's very effective. Um, the downside is that it has become prohibitively expensive now in a lot of cases. Um, and so our patients just cannot afford it. Um, and, and this was actually why we started looking at using selective alpha blocker, blockers, which are uh, shorter acting, significantly cheaper for the patients. And we found in our experience, and we've published on this as well, um, that the selective alpha blockers are just as effective as phenoxybenzamine. It's just important to know how to use these medications, and especially for the anesthesiologist to know how these medications might differ a little bit. Like with phenoxybenzamine, you might see more post-operative hypotension. And to, to be prepared for that, once you ligate the adrenal vein, there might be more hypotension. Um, in the recovery room after surgery, you might need a little more vasopressor support. Whereas uh, with a selective alpha blocker, you might have a little bit more variability as you manipulate the tumor. So for the anesthesiologist to be prepared for that, you know, to give vasodilators as you're doing the procedure. So that's really important to have that communication. Um, it's make sure the anesthesiologist is comfortable and knows what we're using. So that's in terms of the choice. I think either one is fine, whatever is accessible to the patient. Our preference now is usually the selective alpha blockers, mainly due to cost for the patient. Um, and, you know, you want to give it for, I would say, probably at least two weeks before the surgery. And I think the key is that there's no emergency to take these patients to the operating room. Um, it's really important to get the alpha blockade, you know, really good so that it can be a safe surgery. So we have the patient start the medication, email us their blood pressure log every three days. We keep titrating the medication. Our goal is blood pressure usually below like 120 over 80, and we want to see some orthostasis where it drops um, once they stand up. And then sometimes when you initially initiate the alpha blockade, they become tachycardic, and that's when we would consider adding a beta blocker. Uh, and, and we do something, I don't know if it's a UCLA thing or a lot of people do it, this phenylephrine titration test. Uh, Michael, can you kind of talk about that a little bit? 
Oh, yeah. Uh, our anesthesiologists, so we have a core group of about four endocrine anesthesiologists, and they focus on these cases. We will see one field chromocytoma patient on average every two weeks or so, so they get a lot of practice. All their residents train on it. About the phenylephrine titration curve, they're the ones that, that figured this out, I, I think. Um, and what they do is while we're starting the case, the patient is instructed, I believe, to take the last dose of alpha blocker the night before surgery. We often omit the morning dose, and then we start all these cases at 7.30 on Tuesday. Um, and we want to omit the morning dose because we want to have some alpha receptors available, right? Uh, so the anesthesiologist can use those to raise the blood pressure if needed. So as the patient, right before they go to sleep, the anesthesiologists administer escalating doses of phenylephrine and see if the patient's blood pressure responds. That gives them an idea of the completeness of the alpha blockade. And then they use that information during the case to manage the blood pressure. Now, have you have you witnessed them doing this? Yeah, yeah. they've been doing this um, on every PO case that we've been doing. Yeah, I haven't seen this practice in my previous uh, institution. And it gives you an opportunity because, as you said, Masha, it's not an emergency. The, the blockade is really poor. You can decide to stop, continue, do more blockade, and come back at a different time. Yeah. It's an opportunity to retreat at the beginning of the case if you're not happy. Um, you know, something um, that's a really useful compound is using vasopressin to raise the blood pressure because it's a you know non-adrenergic way. Uh, you can sort of run around those receptors. Uh, but the communication with the anesthesiologist is, is terrific. And, and that's like half of, I think, what drives the quality of care for these patients. Yeah. So then to talk about the surgical approach, you know, the keys for a pheochromocytoma are to completely remove it without spilling any pheo tissue. Um, it's, you know, particularly important in this patient where we have a higher risk of having some hereditary predisposition. So maybe higher risk of recurrence. But in any pheo case, benign pheo, if you spill some tissue, then that can just recur endlessly. So you really want to do everything you can to avoid getting into the capsule of the pheochromocytoma or periganglioma and whatever approach you feel comfortable with to accomplish that, you know, th that's really the key. Um, and then just keep in, keeping in mind that depending on how good your apple blockade is, you might have little blood pressure variability as you manipulate the tumor. So you want to avoid kind of mashing on it too hard. We generally prefer a retroperitoneoscopic approach, laparoscopic from the back. Um, it's very direct. You know, the only thing back there is the adrenal gland and the kidney. And once you feel kind of gain um, comfort with anatomy from that direction, um, there's, I think, just less fewer organs to have to deal with. The, you know, liver and spleen and all of that is not in your way. Um, and the other nice thing is that with pheochromocytoma, as you're manipulating it, if you even just kind of just barely disrupt the capsule, it can start bleeding and be very annoying as you try to finish the case. From a retroperitoneoscopic approach, you could increase the insufflation pressure and there's no capsular bleeding. So I think that actually is a nice approach for a pheochromocytoma. Was there talk while writing the guidelines about what size makes it not safe for a minimally invasive approach? When do you have to open or is it still just... I think Whatever it's think. so surgeon dependent, you know, you just have to use your best judgment of what you can do. I mean, I, from a retroperitoneoscopic approach, there's only so much space in the back. Um, so, you know, once you're getting significantly over six centimeters, I think you're limited from a retro approach. There's just, you know, depending on the body habitus. Um, from a laparoscopic transperitoneal approach, I mean, we've removed them, you know, 10 centimeter for your that looks benign from the front. It just requires a lot of 
surgical expertise, <laughs> right? Especially like a big right-sided pheochromocytoma. Yeah, when these tumors get eight centimeters plus, sometimes you start thinking a little bit more malignant for both for both pheo and cortical tumors. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so the lateral transabdominal approach, I think, is a more versatile approach. Um, it, a lot of general surgeons or, or people who've completed general surgery training are that's going to look familiar and it's an easier operation to, to take on um, using your existing skill set. And if there's one technique, I think every surgeon should know for ladrinolectomy, it's that one. The retro technique, I think, you know, we've, how long have we been doing it now? Um, I, since my fellowship, right? So I adapted. Yeah, geez, yes, no, 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 no. We're going to move on. <laughs> Two years ago. Been doing that so <laughs> uh, and it works really well. We do like 80% of our cases yeah. retro, and I think they're probably pretty good up to five centimeters, you know, because there's a, it's a small space. It's the space the operating cavity retro is like the size of a softball, you know, and so we do use higher insufflation pressures which usually works fine. Usually the PCO2 for the patient doesn't climb significantly. And it allows you to tamponade some of the smaller bleeders. You know, feels are really vascular and the, and the bleeding is pesky. Uh, slow you down. So the higher pressure really helps to just to take care of that. It's a kind of clean operation. Uh, so I have to ask because I'm applying into MIS, does the robot have any role? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I think whatever facilitates your ability to, to do the operation. I think it's really important not to get into the capsule of these uh, adrenal tumors, particularly if it's a pheochromocytoma, if it's something that could be malignant. You don't want to spill it, and sometimes they're soft. So however you feel most comfortable doing that. Um, I think that the downside is the temptation to use the tool because you're comfortable with it. And I don't think it's so much robotic versus laparoscopic. I think it's minimally invasive versus open. And knowing when something is suspicious for malignancy um, or it's not going well intraoperatively and you need to convert to open. You yeah. know, and, and that was actually the last point I wanted to make is the transperitoneal approach is much easier to convert to open if you need it to, if you have local invasion or if you have bleeding. So that adds to the versatility of the laparoscopic transperitoneal approach. Yeah. The best patient for retro, like let, let, let's just talk about how we select these patients, right? It's, it's a skinny woman, um, right? Good men tend to have more intra-abdominal fat. We have had cases where we're looking for a tiny aldosteronoma in an ocean of male fat, <laughs> you know, internally. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so maybe go on about the criteria for selecting the approach. Would you, Marcia? Um, yeah, I mean, we look at BMI. I mean, BMI 40 has been used as a cutoff for a retroperitoneoscopic approach, but that also, there's a lot of it is the experience of the surgeon. I mean, a male BMI 40 patient would be very challenging and might take, you know, longer. Uh, but so BMI cut off around 40 and size of the adrenal nodule, I would say six centimeters is the cutoff um, that I typically use. And, you know, really no suspicion for malignancy because it's very difficult to convert from a retroperitoneoscopic approach. Probably the main things. And then, you know, if somebody has had extensive abdominal surgery in the past, then they're a very good candidate for a retro approach. Nah, do you have a favorite approach during well, this year? Yeah, so I've been learning a lot about the retro approach, and I have to say for views, it's been very useful, especially with the high insufflation, and I've done a couple um, uh, transabdominal, and comparing the, the bleeding and those complications versus the retro approach, I really am liking the retro. Yeah, I mean, one comment about uh, for the transabdominal approach, robotic versus lab, I think one key difference is that 
if you have good assistance uh, and you have like somebody to work with you, lap is a little bit better because you can use the ligature, which is like a smaller jaw for taking everything after you've already taken the vein. Whereas the robotic vessel sealer yeah. is quite a clunky, large instrument. Yeah. Uh, and I see that a lot of residents end up doing some kind of blunt dissection with that instrument instead of being able to get a good clamp, uh, which causes a little bit more oozing and annoyance. Um, so I, I think they're roughly the same. I'm sure any literature would say they're the same. Um, but I think uh, the robot doesn't add a whole lot uh, to the adrenal surgery. So then maybe we can move on to the genetic part of it. Um, so this patient ended up having a paraganglioma. I mean, it was intraoperatively mm-hmm. kind of inseparable from the adrenal gland, so it was difficult to distinguish. But on pathology, we were able to actually see that it was separate from the adrenal gland. So it's a paraganglioma. And then um, what's cool is that we always do immunohistochemistry looking for uh, an, an SDH mutation. And this patient did have loss of SDHB staining, um, which means that it's strongly correlated with some germline SDH mutation, not necessarily SDHB, but some kind of SDH mutation. One of the pathologists explained this to me that um, they stain, they happen to stain for the B subunit, but a lot, some sort of mutation in any of the four subunits causes the whole complex, SDHB complex, to fall apart and you lose stain. So all that means you have some, some mutation in one of the four SDH subunits. What I think is interesting about these SDH mutations is that the genotype doesn't predict the phenotype very well, so that in their family members, of course, this person already has a pheo, but if you have family members that have SDH mutations, uh, then only you know, 20% or so of them will actually manifest a paraganglioma pheo. The other things that come with SDH mutations are GISTs, um, and so the recommended screening for these patients is head and neck MRI, abdominal MRI, because you have to look for renal cell carcinomas, pheos, or paragangliomas, and including paragangliomas in the neck. And we always want to mention SDHB mutation is associated with a high, high, much higher risk of malignancy in the pheochromocytoma. Yeah. yeah, I have one patient with um, SDH-associated GIST. Passed, he passed away at a young age. It was terrible. Uh, from the GIST. Mm. And then <clears throat> for SDHD mutations... Classically, it's a lot of head and neck, non, non-secreting head and neck paragangliomas, classically. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, genetic counseling is generally recommended for everybody with a pheochromocytoma, um, but there are some access and cost issues. Um, so you do want to think about which are your patients that are most likely to have you know, a, a hereditary syndrome and really try to maybe concentrate resources on those patients, like the younger patients, patients with an extra adrenal uh, paraganglioma, certainly, you know, loss of SDH on immunohistochemistry, that's going to be an SDH mutation. Um, our, our fellow Nan is actually doing a research study on this. Mm-hmm. Do you want to make a comment? Yeah. So we found that in our study, uh, patients that were younger than 30 years with a pheochromocytoma were more likely to have positive genetic testing um, than patients that were older than 30. A final few points from the guidelines that we haven't been able to hit yet. Um, one of them is adrenal venous sampling. Dr. Lewis, I'd love to hear your thoughts on when you use AVS and the limitations of using it. This is always, you know, one of those really fun debates in endocrine surgery, like do you do a low bore total? When do you do adrenal vein sampling? Um, the, the rationale behind getting adrenal vein sampling is that 
uh, aldosteronomas can be really small. They can be less than a centimeter in size, so you may not see them on cross-sectional imaging. And then the older that a patient gets, the more likely that they are to have a non-functional adrenal incidentaloma. So just because you see a one centimeter nodule does not mean that that is what is producing aldosterone. And if you operate on all those patients, there might be some that actually have bilateral hyperplasia, bilateral aldosterone production, and you do a unilateral surgery and you really haven't helped the patient. So it's really to confirm that you're going to cure the hyperaldosteronism with this unilateral adrenalectomy. Um, you know, the guidelines suggest that patients who are really young, like less than age 35, don't need adrenal vein sampling if you have clear cross-sectional imaging. You have a unilateral nodule and the other adrenal gland looks normal. And the reason is because very young patients are very unlikely to have an adrenal incidentaloma. So in the setting of biochemically confirmed hyperaldosteronism, if you have a unilateral nodule, it's going to be an aldosteronoma. You don't need to get adrenal vein sampling. And the guidelines suggest that anybody who's over age 35, you at least consider getting adrenal vein sampling. Um, I, I would say I'm a little bit more... Uh, liberal, what's the word, uh, less strict <laughs> with my criteria to get adrenal vein sampling. And um, the reason is that I do think it's kind of an invasive test for the patients to go through. And I, and so uh, for me, if there's a very, like, uh, you know, severe biochemical picture, the patient has significant hyperaldosteronism, maybe they've had hypokalemia, and they have, you know, one to two centimeter adrenal nodule on one side, normal contralateral adrenal gland, all of that, they're very likely to have unilateral disease. And so I may bypass adrenal vein sampling, even in an older patient. But I do at least have the discussion with the patient that there's a little more uncertainty that they're going to achieve a cure if they don't have adrenal vein sampling. Um, and there are other centers that get it and, you know, almost all of their patients if they're going to take them to surgery. I think the downside of getting ABS in all cases is one access, you know, we're thinking about all these patients around the country. They may have access to a surgeon who could do an adrenalectomy, but not an interventional radiologist that can do the adrenal vein sampling. We don't want to limit access to potential cure of hyperaldosteronism by mandating ABS in all these cases. And then the other thing is that the ABS is, is a difficult, you know, technically difficult procedure, um, especially cannulating the right adrenal vein. And so the success depends on the experience of the radiologist. Um, and so you might get, you know, get ABS and not be able to cannulate both adrenal veins and not have totally useful information to get. I think that's such an important point about access. Um, I was spending part of my time at the county hospital. Initially, the ABSs there were just so cattywampus. It was like a series of eight levels um, that they weren't like, you know, labeled. You kind of had to do detective work to know it was left or right. Uh, and so I definitely think that uh, logistically, if, if you're at a place that doesn't routinely do them, um, talking to the radiologist, uh, giving them feedback about how you'd like things labeled, and even small things like asking to use ACTH, because the test can be augmented if they get dosed with ACTH, but at the county initially we we're doing them without it, with more indeterminate results. Um, I think these are all good considerations if your facility doesn't do them like all the time. It takes a while. It takes you know it's hard to find a radio interventional radiologist who's good at this. Um, and for the people out there who are listening to this, who maybe run their own programs, you've got to choose someone to develop them, and it takes years. And then you could develop them by sending them a dozen cases like this, and they could leave your institution, which has, of course, happened. It's brutal. Um, that right adrenal vein is really, really tough. If you guys have ever seen this procedure, remember the right adrenal vein empties directly 
into the vena cava. And in order to cannulate this, they have these catheters that are shaped like a cobra. So it goes way up and makes this huge hairpin loop and then comes down again and makes this S-curve. And they're supposed to like poke that little stubby end into the right adrenal vein. It's very, very hard when you watch it. Like I'm squirming around. Like it's very stressful to watch them try to do this. Um, so yeah, a tough procedure. I agree with you, Vasha. I, I am not, uh, I've got two patients right now who are older men with five drug hypertension and severe disease and severe hypokalemia. And that's the second time we've said the word hypokalemia. That's severe disease. Patients who are hypokalemic have a higher pretest probability of a unilateral process. And in these one guy, I'm just going straight to surgery. I just don't think it's going to change anything. He's got a big lesion too. Remember, for the listeners, most aldosteronomas are small, less than two centimeters. Almost all of them. This guy's got a 2.5 centimeter lesion and he's been sick for like 10 years. I have another guy, very similar scenario. He had an AVS, which was even secretion. I'm not sure I believe it. Right? He's so sick. So he's going to get a repeat ABS. But he already asked me, what if the repeat ABS also shows even Steven? Then what? Well, Isn't there a new paper that says that with people with bilateral disease, if your patient does not lateralize, that sometimes you can take out part of both adrenal glands to help try to cure it? Yeah. Very controversial. So if you have a patient who shows bilateral secretion on ABS, can you do a unilateral operation to help them? I don't know. I think... Too, too early to say. I'm, I'm skeptical. Yeah, yeah. And then actually this goes to how do you interpret the ABS results, right? So when we look at the ABS results, the first question is, did we cannulate both adrenal veins? So you're looking at the cortisol level in that sample compared to the peripheral cortisol. And you want to see a ratio of, let's say, at least four to one that you confirm, yes, we were both in the right and left adrenal vein. And then you're, then you're correcting the aldosterone level to the cortisol on each side, because let's say you were deeper in the vein on one side and the cortisol maybe is higher on that side and the aldosterone might be higher just because you're in a different location in that vein. So we want to correct the aldosterone to the cortisol on both sides. And then you look at the ratio of those ratios and you want to see a ratio of, again, over four to one, a ratio of aldosterone cortisol on one side compared to the other side, that's at least four to one. And if you see that, you're convinced that it's unilateral disease, patient would benefit from a unilateral operation. You know, if you have a ratio of like 3.5 or 3.7, I think that's like maybe you could, and you have an adrenal nodule on that side, you know, maybe you make the case to proceed with the surgery. If you have a ratio of one, I think it's harder to make that case. I mean, that's a case that based on ABS is really bilateral. And how do you guys manage if patients are on spironolactone? Uh, that's another great question. Uh, traditionally, we've stopped the spironolactone to do the ABS. However, um, if the renin is suppressed, then you should be able to get the ABS and not stop the spironolactone. It should not interfere with the ABS results. Um, you know, typically the spironolactone dose is not that high, so it is not suppressing the renin. So it should not interfere with the ABS results. I think one big thing that we haven't talked about is uh, the cancer. Um, when we see adrenal adenomas, we get worried. Uh, we have to answer two questions, really, and they're separate questions. One, we've talked about a bunch today, is if it's making too much hormone. The other one is, is this cancer? Um, so how do we answer that question? For the cancer question, we're, we're mainly looking at size and imaging characteristics. Right. So size under four centimeters, it's very unlikely to be a malignancy. Low density is very unlikely to be a malignancy. So we kind of use both of those things together. A larger than four centimeter nodule, particularly that's high density, that's what is you know worrisome for a malignancy. And I think the big uh, teaching point for residents is that 
we have to use these imaging characteristics because you cannot confirm adrenal cortical carcinoma with a biopsy. And FMA Great is point. not useful. So you kind of have to go off the imaging and say, okay, let's take this out or, or decide to, to wait on it. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. In general, biopsying an adrenal nodule, I mean, first of all, you know, it, it, you can't biopsy until you rule out your homocytoma because you don't want to precipitate a hypertensive crisis. But then secondly, you're, you're probably just going to see some cortical adrenal cells um, and you won't be able to get a diagnosis. Um, the only really kind of um, helpful part uh, of biopsying the adrenal nodule once you've ruled out a FIO is if you want to see if it's metastatic disease from, you know, melanoma or, or something else. That's so much great content. Thanks so much. Um, it was such a pleasure to work with this team and record for Behind the Knife. We're looking forward to the next team that takes over. Until next time, dominate the day. But right now we're going to go dominate clinic. <laughs> Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.